Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. I heard a phrase yesterday for the first time and my jaw just about dropped. Micro-cheating. Have you negotiated your micro-cheating if you're married? If you are planning to get married, have you negotiated micro-cheating? If you've been married for decades, did you ever negotiate micro-cheating? What is micro-cheating? The number is 888-914-9149. Joining me today on Trending is Devin Shad, and we will dive into what is micro-cheating? Is it cheating? What's the big deal? Is it something you have to actually talk about in your relationship today? That is the question of the hour. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we would love to hear from you. Again, our toll-free line is 888-914-9149, sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. What? Why is physical intimacy a core need for a man? Yesterday here on Trending, we had licensed marriage and family therapist Doug Hinder, and he dove into 13 key, th- key things that every couple does who has a healthy, robust, marital sexual relationship. But today, I want to dive a little deeper into the core of marital intimacy, more so from the perspective of a man. I think there are a lot of male-female differences in the culture when it comes to what we assume, what we don't assume. But there are a lot of differences in terms of men and women, in terms of what we understand from our Catholic faith. Devin Shad is from the founder of the Fathers of St. Joseph, and he understands keenly the keenly the depth of men and how those deepest longings for men, those deepest desires are directly connected to the spiritual life. And you may think, hey, what happens in the bedroom stays in the bedroom. Let's not talk about religion and mix the two together, just like you might not like to mix politics and religion, but that's next to impossible. And we're not really being Catholic if we don't bring all areas of our life from work to intimacy to friendships to faith all into one realm. So to dive into this, diving into the three phases of a man in his life, what is physical intimacy as a core need for a man? Why is it a core need for a man? We'll dive into micro-cheating and the responsibility that we have for one another. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray here on Relevant Radio. You can find Devin Shad at the fathers of stjoseph.org. He's the founder of the Fathers of St. Joseph, as well as an author of numerous books that you can find there on his website. Devin, welcome back to Trending. Hey, thanks for having me on, Tim Ray. <laughs> so I was talking to you earlier today and I ran this by you. Had you ever heard of micro cheating? And your response was, What on earth is that? <laughs> and your initial response I thought was great, which was what? I can't remember now. What did I say? As you said, cheating is cheating. 
exactly. <laughs> cheating is cheating. Like, are we really having this conversation? But I came across a video that someone sent me, a faithful listener of the show from Psychology Today. Now, whether you love or hate Psychology Today, they had an Instagram reel that's going around with a psychologist who brought up and defined and explained the negotiation needed for micro-cheating today. Listen to this. <laughs> Hi, I'm psychotherapist Dr. Joe Court, and I want to talk about the meaning of micro-cheating in a relationship. When I meet with couples, I ask them the relationship status. Are they monogamous? Are they open? Are they polyamorous? Are they monogamous? And even if they tell me they're monogamous, I ask them, have you negotiated your monogamy? And couples look at me like I have two heads. What is there to negotiate? Well, can you please yourself privately? Can you flirt? Can you accept pictures from other people that are not dressed? Can you have um, a social media relationship with somebody that you don't know uh, or somebody that's from another country? And one partner says, absolutely not. That's all cheating. And the other person says, well, because couples often argue over contracts they haven't made. And so then these are considered micro cheating times where you are um, unable to accept a partner's behaviors because it feels like they've gone outside the relationship and they no longer want uh, to have a committed monogamous relationship with you. So micro cheating simply means little forms of covert cheating, but often they haven't been talked about. I will admit the benefit is that well, he actually clarified the psychologist that these are types of cheating. You put it a little more bluntly, Devin. But when I heard this, my mind was spinning thinking, do we actually need to talk about these things? And at first, I kind of laughed that we're even labeling this as any other form of cheating than cheating. But it's legitimate. People do enter into monogamous and open relationships among others. And I think we're in a season, Devin, of black isn't black and white isn't white anymore. It is, but not everyone thinks that way. And so the psychologist gave this great example where one person goes, that's absolutely cheating. The other person went, wait, really? Kind of jaw dropped, a little confused. So here's my first question for you. And if you're listening now, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Did you ever actually have to negotiate or clarify what cheating was or was not before you got married? And if you could give a caveat of how long you've been married as well. Me, I've been married almost 29 years now, and I think that there was no doubt what cheating is and isn't. And I, in fact, I, you know, he said, "Oh, well, you know, it's 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 micro cheating, such a small thing." You know, it's like, okay, we're not going to murder the person; we're just going to cut off a limb. It's just a small <laughs> thing, you know. Or, you know, the ring of power. You know, you got Boromir when he wants to take the ring from Frodo, and he says it's such a small thing, but that small thing consumed him and ended up killing him in the end. You know, mm -hmm. so. So I think that cheat, when we use the word cheat, I think cheat is a word that cheats the reality of the situation. How about mm -hmm. adultery? Or how about whoever looks at a, another woman or a person with lust has already committed, you know, divorce or adultery in their heart? I, I think that cheat means really to steal. And what are we stealing? We're stealing the just due owed to a spouse. And what is the just due owed to the spouse? My complete self, which I signed up for, till death do us part, better for worse, to love you particularly, monogamously, to, in my case as a man, to love as Christ. In her case, to love as like the church would love Christ. So I think that cheating cheats the reality of the situation. 
I think that that's a key because it dives into the bigger picture of, well, what is marriage? Are we actually celebrating and acknowledging and working toward marriage for what it is? Or are we sitting here chipping away at what the beautiful design of marriage is? And it's interesting because a psychologist from Psychology Today even goes on to explain, well, here are different forms of what people now consider micro-cheating. Placing yourself in private, social media relationships, photos being sent to you by someone else or vice versa, videos. We could go on and on. Pornography at the end of the day is part of what I think a lot of people think of as not being cheating. It's just me, myself, and I, and people can make the same argument for so-called self-pleasure, masturbation, etc., all of which goes completely against the marital contract. All of it goes against the view of chastity. Chastity is to be faithful to your vocation is what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, which means whether you're married, if you're married, you stay faithful to your spouse. If you're not married, you stay faithful to the fact that you're not married and you don't have a spouse. If you are a celebrate priest or a nun, you remain faithful to your vocation, that current state in life that you're in. So, What do you think has changed? Do you think people need to now have these conversations about micro-cheating and pointing out, as you said before, that cheating is cheating? Well, I think, uh, do we need, I mean, absolutely, is it necessary for us to have these conversations? It should not be, but that's where our culture is at. So I think this is a great opportunity for us as Catholics to step into that conversation and to bring the light of the gospel and the truth. And, you know, it's just like, You know, we had this situation back in the early church where Roman or Greek marriage, I mean, I'm sure you remember this, but from our history lessons, but a Greek man had like three levels of women. He had his wife Mm -hmm. who he kept in private to to basically raise up children for him. He had, you know, a, a singular woman who was kind of like a concubine or maybe multiple concubines. And then he had prostitutes and then there was whatever else. So, so that was kind of a normalized uh, stratus or, or there was a normalized way that men lived back in the Greek and Roman era. Then when Christianity came on the scene yes. and the Christians were living differently, the, the Roman and Greek women were like, what is that? I <laughs> want that. And I think that this is a perfect opportunity for us as Catholics to be like shining lights and everybody's going, what is that? I want that. Yeah. Christianity elevated the status of women and the line was drawn. And this is what's fascinating is people try to point to salvation history and how even patriarchs of the Old Testament had additional wives or concubines, but that was never licit. That was never desired by God. That was actually when people were going outside of the plan and the guidance of God. And so I think that that's key to looking at salvation history is understanding when do people get it wrong? And I actually remember, Devin, when my sister was getting married, my little sister was getting married, and the priest was going through marriage prep with her, and he said he wanted her to read Genesis. I can't remember if it was the whole book or just, I don't know, the first X so many chapters. He said, I want you to sit and look at this and see what happens with every single marital relationship and what goes wrong. And I Mm. love that he did that because he really pointed to, like, look, for example, with Abraham and Bathsheba. They took things into their old hands, ignoring the God-given plan that is always there, even when we don't understand it. Yeah, you know, that's awesome. What's interesting is when you look at the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth and so on, it's, it's, it's an incredible fact that Isaac was the only one who was monogamous. 
And Isaac was the only one who is not sent or directed by God into exile. That's, that's huge. That's huge. So what does that say to us? The power of monogamy in our marriage is stability and God's favor. Because why? Because we image him in his fidelity to the church. And I honestly wonder if the reason today why so many people are leaving Christ is because their spouses left them. Or so many people are cheating Christ because their spouse is cheating on them. And they, I think we have a tendency to yeah. equate the way that we see the divine spouse with the earthly spouse. And so if our earthly spouse is unfaithful and stable, it kind of it disrupts our relationship with the divine spouse. Let's take this to a practical side because I think all of this is fantastic. You're right. When we get this, no, but you're right, Devin, like, because what you're saying is we leave God because of our human relationships. It's 100% correct. But then on the practical side, I asked you earlier, do we need to have these conversations with the people we're married to before we get married as a part of Mm -hmm. marriage prep when Mm -hmm. you're dating? And unfortunately, we do. And that's what's so sad is you didn't have to have those conversations. I, you know, based on the man I married, we touched on these areas. We talked a lot about pornography. I mean, if you know me, you couldn't really get away with not talking about it. Um, But I think that the truth of the matter is, is that like, I think no matter what type of person you marry today, we need to have all our cards on the table and be able to have these uncomfortable conversations, even if we don't even think the other person would be interested in that, but just that we're on the same page. And if temptation ever occurs or bad situations happen, that we're able to come back to the table and have conversations about those exact issues. So what would you consider like a baseline? Do you throw out talking about pornography? Do you talk about masturbation? My goodness, I don't even think I ever talked about that with my spouse now before we got married. Like, how much of this actually do you think needs to be said? Yeah, well, I mean, if you're giving all of yourself in marriage to the other and the other is giving all of their self to you, then all of it as much as, you know, can be taken properly with the guidance perhaps of a priest or a counselor should be on the table. And here's why, because there are people who are going into marriage, say with same sex attraction and they're going into a heterosexual marriage and they hide that. And then it comes out later or a pornography addiction or, or whatever it is. It could just be a shopaholic or whatever. And they bury and hide this only for it to come out like 10 years into the marriage, seven years Mm -hmm. into the marriage, alcoholism, whatever it is, that's unjust. Because you're withholding something that is justly due to the other, which is knowledge about your spouse. And so I think really we need to revamp marriage prep. You know, I, I, I think I that, had a terrible yeah, marriage prep. <laughs> uh, we did too. And, uh, but a little aside, my wife and I were completely uncompatible by the test. But it's so funny <laughs> because the priest said, you know, I, I wonder if you guys maybe should take a break from this. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, 29 years later, God willing, God's grace, okay. we're still here. But I just think that, um, I do think that priests should vet the couples. And, you know, I just heard this recently and it just kind of bothers me, but a seminarian shared with um, some friends of mine that there's a little file that sometimes the the couple's files go into and it's potential divorce, future divorce file. They just basically say, yep, this couple wow. is going to end up there. I think that's so sad because if you, if you have an idea that this isn't going to work, I think just as much as the couple needs to be on the table with everything, 
the church needs to be on the table with everything. I agree. And I agree. And I, you know, we look at seminary. Seminary, how many years? Eight years of seminary uh, for these guys who are giving their lives to the priesthood. And I think that with marriage, you know, five classes, three classes, you know, maybe you meet with a mentor couple. I mean, this sacrament is just as important. It's the trailhead of society and the church. And I really think that we need to revamp this. So yes, communication leads to communion. And if a couple can learn, and this is the key, and this is so beautiful. If couples can learn to communicate through the tensions and the difficulties before they get married, they will be prepared and have the ammunition or at least have the capability to be able to communicate well after they're married. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you mentioned this and the issue on the side of the priest, like if you're a priest listening, stick to what the church teaches. Please stick with what the church teaches because it is sure and clear sound advice. And I went to school with a ton of seminarians. We all graduated together. I have tons of friends who are priests and I'm always intrigued by some of these uncomfortable conversations that occur surrounding marriage prep. And I remember some years ago, and it's like stuck. It sticks out like a thumb to me to this day. I have a friend who mentioned he was preparing a couple for marriage. He was almost positive that they were living together, but they weren't bringing that to the table. And the whole time, Mm -hmm. I just kept thinking, you're a priest. You represent Christ peel back the layers with love, look under the covers and reveal what is happening so that they have the healthiest possible outcome. And I remember he kept saying, well, I'm afraid to go there. I'm afraid that they'll run away and not get married in the church. I get that. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, and I love our priests, so much respect. You're a priest of the church. And if you have that gut, let's not say gut, but Holy Spirit belief that this couple is living in sin. Let's make that clear and honor them by the fact that they're desiring to get married, but say, hey, let's practice absence and chastity for a while. What that could do for the three months or six months or 10 months before a wedding could be amazing for that couple. And I think sometimes we deprive people of that ability because we're not willing to lean in and have those uncomfortable conversations, which I think micro cheating is one of those topics that couples now need to have as well. Right. That's huge. I, I just, I would love to get your take on this, but I think that if a priest knows that a couple is living together prior to marriage, I'm not sure if the marriage is actually valid. I, yep. I'm not sure I, yep. if, if that, if they're going That's into the marriage with annulment, right? It's yeah. no. And so is the sacrament really a sacrament at that point and everybody's participating in it, you know, and approving it. And so, that, to me, that just that whole thing—you're getting the couple out on, off on the wrong foot. I, I have a priest friend who just blew me away. I, he had this little country parish, and these couples would come to him for marriage prep, and he would say, "Are you living together?" And they would say, "Yeah." And he goes, "Okay, until you guys decide to live separately, I can't help you." And oh, the parents mm-hmm. just would flip out and just gets. And he would stand his ground, knowing that. You know, he's backed by the church. He would hear it from both sides. He would hear from his superiors, but also from the parents. But he held his ground. And, you know, there were some couples who actually thanked him later. And that's the beauty of it. They thanked him that they were able to be given the opportunity, though it was painful, Mm -hmm. to do it right. That's that's the beauty. I love that story. And it reminds me of another story because I think this is an example of our priest towing the line and holding couples accountable for what the church teaches. I have some cousins who got pregnant outside of wedlock and before the baby came, wanted to get married in the church and father met with them, a good family uh, priest and friend of the family. He met with them. He talked with them and he told them, okay, 
you can get married in the church. I see where you're at. I'm working with you guys. You know, called them to uh, abstain until marriage and was very clear about the choices they made beforehand. They said, but you're not allowed to have anyone at your wedding and you're not allowed to wear a white dress. And guess what? I remember my cousin's like, okay, yep. Like that, that's, that's the truth of the matter. So they didn't have a plug book wedding. No one was there. I wasn't there. I love my cousin dearly. I wasn't at her own wedding. And not only that, but she also didn't wear a white dress. And so I give that example because here she is many years later, more children and happily married. God is good. But I think that we learn a lot from our mistakes <laughs> and my my producer's saying that's so mean <laughs> I, and i know people no, are no, gonna have that same so reaction great. it's it's, it's, it's so true great. and i mean i could even look at it from an outside perspective he said he's only kidding from an outside perspective like <laughs> as a family member i could be sitting here saying well i wanted to go to your wedding i love you i'm so happy you're getting married in the church but the priest was again this was his way of doing it respectfully reminding them of what marriage is what the celebration is and called them to humility in the midst of their situation and while still celebrating marriage also acknowledge the reality of where they were at in it so man so many things could be discussed here but like your story with the the priest friend who is saying no to marrying people who are living together these are situations that the church praise god has clear sound guidance on and i just want to invite you if you're engaged and you want to get married in the Catholic Church, and you're living together, you're sleeping together, it's a season. Six months, three months, ten months, I don't know how long that is before you get married. This is your opportunity to show your spouse that you are committed to only sleeping with someone you're married to. And who knows, you might be surprised. That relationship might end, or that might suddenly teach you and your spouse the incredible gift of self-control and a gift that you then have to offer when you actually do get married. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. That's Devin Shad from the Fathers of St. Joseph. You can find him at fathersofstjoseph.org. Talking about some spicy topics today, why is physical intimacy a core need for a man? Devin Shad will walk through this. We'll talk about seven benefits of physical intimacy and the three phases of a man. So stick with me today on trending yeah you can find devin at fathers of stjoseph.org along with his books talking about what you're thinking about you're listening to trending with timory on relevant radio and the relevant radio app (laughs) i was just laughing we're talking about what you're thinking about i was just looking at some statistics that the average teenage male actually thinks about sex the average of every eight to nine seconds and not that that's as much for adult males but it's pretty frequent and Devin you and I were discussing this earlier today's topic is why is physical intimacy a core need for a man we are going to get deep into the psyche the theology of men and why this shouldn't be looked at as nuisance as something bad, although it can be for the bad, looking at this from the perspective of, I think, especially within marriage, having an appreciation as a wife for the desires and gifts of a husband and for a husband to temper his desires is so key. Now, we know as Catholics, 
hopefully we know this, that sexuality is at the core of what marriage is. Every marital act or every marriage has the end of having children and educating them, which means you need to fruitfully make love to have babies. And with that comes this sexual ethic for Catholics that every sexual act is entered into both unitively and procreatively. That's for the good of the spouses and that procreatively so that we're open to every baby that might come when we enter into the marital embrace. Now, that doesn't mean every a baby will come every time. Hopefully you know that. Not everyone does. It's always funny getting to talk to teenagers and what they think. Uh, but what is key is that in good times and in bad, in expected and wanted times, but also in less than ideal moments, we're open to new life. But I think it's interesting, Devin, because I find that prior to marriage, a lot of people are usually pretty excited about sexual intimacy. And we have all these hopes and desires for one another. Men and women love each other, the differences, the titillating parts of the exciting elements leading up to marriage. And then suddenly you get married and it's almost as if all those differences are nuisances and dislikes and grievances you have with one another. And sexual intimacy is really at the core of this misunderstanding when it comes to male-female differences. You and I spoke earlier and you shared that sexual intimacy actually defines a man and gives him value and purpose. Can you explain how this is a case and why sexual intimacy is a core need for a man? Yeah, we can we can begin. I think it'd be good to begin with the natural and maybe move to the supernatural or the physical and move to the spiritual. But I, I, I think that women, they are oriented toward giving life. That's what they are designed for. And a man is similar to a woman in that he's oriented toward giving life, but that life does not grow within him. So a woman, naturally, she knows how to give because that's how she is, to give another literally to the world and to give herself for another. That's what a woman does. But a man, he's kind of disconnected from all of this. That's not how he thinks, okay? So he has to learn this. He has to learn self-gift. And self-gift is learned in the context of relationship. And relationship, the most difficult relationship really, but the most rewarding relationship for a man is marriage. And particularly in marriage, one of the most difficult aspects to navigate, but also the mo- one of the most rewarding is sexual intimacy. And so I think that when you look at a man, he plants a part of himself, literally, outside of himself. And yet he's still disconnected from the rest of the process. So he gives of himself from himself and outside of himself, inside of her for life. And that's where we get this idea. Like you remember in the creation account, uh, Adam was cast into a deep sleep. And the Hebrew is tardama. That's the word for the deep sleep, which is a supernatural slumber, ecstasis in the Greek, ecstasy. And so what does God do? God takes the rib of Adam and forms the woman, uh, takes it out of Adam and forms the woman from it. Adam is literally outside of himself. That's what ecstasy means, to be outside of himself. And so here it is, a woman is formed from him. Literally from that moment on, Adam in a sense finds himself in Eve. A man finds himself a woman. And a woman is a reminder to the man always of what he's called to do. He's called to give himself to her and for her. But this is the problem. When that becomes disordered, the man resents that deeply, subconsciously. He resents the fact that he has to sacrifice for a woman. And so what does he do? He wants to use her. And so 
we'll see that one of the ultimate purposes of sexual union for the man, the way that God has designed this, is to teach a man to learn to move beyond himself, okay? To move beyond himself into the other. I don't know if I'm going too fast, but I just feel like that's a huge point. And that's the point I think that God wants to get across to us is that is God has created this need in a man to give himself away. Yes, he derives pleasure from it, but he's got to figure out how to temper mm -hmm. that so that he can actually bring the woman not only physical pleasure, but emotional, intimate pleasure. I think this is fantastic. You're tying the theology along with just the real material desire a man has and how in woman, in a woman, even just the primordial example of Adam, Adam finds himself in Eve. That physicality of the reality is, is that Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and that physical reality of being like a key in a lock, the two bodies coming together actually pointed to a spiritual reality that means so much more in helping to define a man. But yet again, there's this disconnect in understanding a man's sexual drive is much stronger than a woman's. And how does that look in marriage as a part of a core need for building up the husband? Yeah. Yeah. So let's just try to understand the sexual drive of a man and ladies who are listening. Um, this is, we're going to allow you into the craziness, the insaneness of the masculine mind, because like at puberty, a young man, he, he gradually realizes that what differentiates him from a woman is his sexual drive. Okay. So he's, he, this is, this at a very human level, sexuality is so important to a man. Because And this is why guys think about things like size, strength, endurance, the ability to perform, to give pleasure. All this is instinctively important to a man because when he goes through puberty, he believes that that part of him that differentiates him from a woman is so it, – it's so connected to manhood. His, his manhood is rooted in his sexuality. And so when he's coming to himself in all of this and recognize himself – there's two things that are going on. He recognizes that this is what differentiates him from a woman. So in his mind, this is what makes me a man. But this is also how he will relate to the woman. And this is where it can go off the rails or stay on the rails. So how he, this is how he believes himself to be a man in his sexual drive, his ability to perform, all of these things. However, what God is trying to do is teach him how to give. But what can happen is in our culture, we see this all the time because we're not formed in virtue is that he understands as a way to gain. Because mm -hmm. as we know, almost hundred percent of the time when a guy enters into sexual intercourse, he has pleasure, but this isn't exactly the case for a woman. So this is where we've got to kind of enter into mm -hmm. this tension of the sexual drive of man. So he, he has this, it's deeply connected between his brain and his loins, seriously, reverently. He grows up with this and discovers, okay, this is, this is a driving force in my life. Like you said, the average teenage male thinks about, you know, sex every eight to nine seconds. And, you know, there's hope for us as we get older. I think it's like 12 <laughs> or 13 seconds, you know, later on in life. But, but yeah, I mean, it's a constant battle and, and ladies, to understand your husbands who are trying to be virtuous, your husbands who are not using pornography, your husbands who are actually trying to uphold your dignity, this is a tenacious battle. Because if you think about this, if this is really real, which it is, a man thinks about 
sex, let's just let's just give it a break. Let's just say it's maybe twelve seconds or fifteen seconds. <laughs> and he's <laughs> trying to be virtuous. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah. He is under siege. The demons are battling him at every turn. He has to deal with this every minute mm. of the day. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think women have a, a so where we're disconnected from the idea of the naturalness of giving as a woman does with children, men or women can be disconnected from this battle that we have to be virtuous in this area, to defeat lust in the heart, to love women properly, because we're just naturally hardwired by God this way because we're made to procreate. That's the natural side of it. So, so then what? So we need to move from that natural side of that sexual drive. Now, what is God going to do through the man as he moves through these phases toward, you know, ultimate masculinity? And I don't want to move too fast, but I think that that's, that's the baseline, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, something that my producer said, and I hope he doesn't mind that I just threw this in, but he said, this is why work is so good for a man. Being busy with work keeps a man's thoughts more properly ordered. <laughs> exactly. And I love that Jim just said this because we live at a time where a lot of men are very idle both in the type mm-hmm. of sedentary jobs that they engage in. And I know that's a real struggle for a lot of men, uh, but also idleness in general. I mean, idleness is the devil's playground. And so that that mm-hmm. virtue of work is so key in understanding your desire and how your body works. And it, it all ties into one another. And I think it's fascinating, too, when you look at the phases of men and how they develop. You and I were discussing this earlier about how through the phases of a man's manhood, he comes to a deeper understanding of his sexuality and how it's deeply connected to his identity. Yeah, so exactly. So if we're talking about that teenage young man or the young man who's just kind of coming, gradually coming into the discovery of his masculinity on a very natural level, then we can, you know, we we did talk about how there's got to be a preparatory stage for the virtuous guys that isn't, and this is the key, um, when we're preparing for marriage, men need to learn not only to abstain, because that's that's the negative, right? But they need to learn how to give properly. And so before marriage, this does not mean sexual intimacy in the sexual act. So what this means is, is that a young man has to learn how to give himself properly to this woman he's in love with for and, and train himself to do it not for gain, not to get something back, but out of love. I, I think to, out of, for the other's sake, this is key because when we get into man 2.0, that's the married man. And I think this is why marriage is so beautiful and so powerful and so important. Um, well, not only that God created it, I mean, but it's mm-hmm. so powerful because literally in the, in the Hebrew in Genesis count, God says, uh, it is not good that man is alone. And that Hebrew word for alone is abadad, which literally means bad. It's the only time God says that something is bad in the, in the creation count. And what is it? When man's alone. So God wants man to learn how to live in relationship. And so when he enters into marriage, he is going to learn how to take all that masculine sexual drive, and God is gonna call him to learn how to master it or to use it properly in two ways so that he can learn how to give and sacrifice. And what are the two ways? Engaging in it and abstinence. 
And this is really important because John Paul II said in his Theology of the Body, he says, more, more difficult it is for the married man than it is the celibate because the married man engages his sexual faculty, but then has to abstain for periods of time. Whereas a celibate man, he just abstains. And mm-hmm. so there is this delicacy of the of the battle for virtue when I engage in something like sexual activity to do it properly. And so mm-hmm. when the man engages, the married man, he has to learn how to love tenderly, mm-hmm. respectfully, reverently, even disinterestedly, like for her, not for himself in a way, to provide her intimacy, yes, pleasure, physically, hopefully, but but mostly intimately. And this takes a lot of effort because he has to get beyond, we men, like you're talking about work. The reason why we love work if we're virtuous is because we're able to finish and complete, sow the seed, watch it grow, we get it done, and we love that. Well, in the sexual act, men have a finality to that. That's with the climax, and that's what happens. You know, And so that's a very sensitive topic. But the point is that men can move too quickly too fast to that end okay and and just want to finish it whereas they have to engage in the act in such a way where they're loving their bride tenderly and reverently and 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 bringing her to that level of emotional intimacy that she desires but on the other hand he has to abstinence he has to learn to offer his body as a living sacrifice by overcoming lust or even mm-hmm. if he isn't lustful overcoming the desire to be with his wife by respecting her when she is unwilling to love her for her own sake say she's stressed out or say her body is fatigued or she's got a health problem or maybe she just can't have another kid right now because she's wigged out you know and stressed out beyond there's so many things right that can go on that are very natural yeah i think a lot of men and women have a hard time reconciling those seasons in life yeah exactly and but what does that do what does that occasion do for both the wife and the man, but especially the man? It gives them a context for communication and conversation, which can lead to communion, because that's where he expresses his authentic need for her, not for sex. And this is very important. We talked about this before. Sex isn't a thing that she gives me. It is her that I want. And so it gives, when when there's these struggles and these tensions, whether it's her health or whether it's him being stressed out with work and he's distant, the two can talk about this and realize that, hey, we, we can work through this. We can come to the center on this. We can figure out how to give to one another. And that's when the, the marriage really blossoms. And I, I really think that this is important. In the Hebrew literature, uh, especially in the Genesis account, you know, we hear that Adam was placed in a garden. He was commanded to, to guard and protect that garden. In Hebrew literature, woman is often referred to as a garden. Mm-hmm. And so... A man plants a seed, yes, he cultivates that seed, he nurtures her, but he wants to see her flourish and bear life. But here's the situation for the man. You look at the the old Adam, he was in the Garden of Eden, which means paradise, pleasure park. Okay, And then Jesus, the new Adam, was in Gethsemane, which means oil press. And so Jesus literally, because he loved his bride so much, the oil of charity was being squeezed out of him through his self-giving. And he and he set that pace of self-giving love all the way to Calvary. Whereas Adam, he had the pleasure side of it. And yeah, we know what happened with Adam. He, he failed. 
But my point here is that in marriage for the man, it's going to be agony and it's going to be ecstasy. It's going to be pain and it's going to be pleasure. It's a both and. And the real man, he he gradually sexual intimacy and the absence from it with his wife, that's the agony ecstasy, affords him an incredible opportunity to become the man of God that God is creating him to be. And this is the key. God is cultivating in him. The, he's teaching him how to learn how to give, how to learn how to give engaging in the act without being selfish and like the he, heathens, you know, for his own self-satisfaction solely. But also when he abstains, he learns to sacrifice for his wife. And in this, this is so beautiful. This is where he learns to give. And this sacrificial responsibility is the essence of a man. When a man learns to give like that, he is ready to he is ready to be a real man. He is ready to go to the next level. And as you're speaking of this, Devin, you are giving me so much information into the male psyche. And I think a lot of men as well who are having a better understanding of the reality of the sexual urge, but the gift that it is. And it's making me think of the paradox of the cross. The cross is both Christ's triumphant moment and also his cross, right? Like his suffering. And in a certain respect, as you're pointing to the definition of man as sex, sexuality in his urge being a part of that as God-given, you're pointing to how this is what leads him to a life of self-giving love. It leads him, as you said, to a time to indulge and enjoy out of love, but also a season to abstain out of love and self-respect as well. And if the two go hand in hand, it can be understood ideally and work toward in all phases of life. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. That's Devin Shaw from the Fathers of St. Joseph. We're going to come right back, continuing this great conversation on sexuality, why physical intimacy is a core need for a man, and these three phases of a man, and coming to a deeper understanding of how he relates in his life with this constant sexual urge that we know teenagers think about sex, that is boys, an average of eight to nine seconds. Well, men, you have a little more hope of about every 12 to 13. But why is that? Is it God-given? That's what we've been unpacking with Devin Shad here on Trending. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to Trending. Devin Shaw from the Fathers of St. Joseph is with me. You can find him at fathersofstjoseph.org. That's fathersofstjoseph.org. Devin, today's topic has been completely surrounding the sexual desire that is predominant among men and how this is a God-given desire and is actually opportunity for tremendous sacrificial love. And this is why it's at the core of a man's identity. You've been walking us through, I think, really profound psychology and theology with regard to why that desire is there, why it needs to be met, fulfilled, and even appreciated on the part of women and not looked at as a nuisance or a nag or to even look at men as less than or shame them for this being at the core of who they are. You're walking through the three phases of man from that awakening as a teenager where he starts to understand himself as a sexual being and how that <laughs> takes him to so much of what he thinks about and desires to then being that man who starts to learn to uh, have a sense of dominance and domain over why sexual intimacy is at its core. Can you continue to walk us through these three phases of a man? Yeah. So 
as the man, the married man, he's learned to engage and refrain. And he's he God is giving him the grace. We have to remember that God is the one who's giving the grace. Up to us, we can't do this. This is a tall call. But God does give the grace. And God's going to give more grace than we actually can even comprehend in this area. And when that happens, that sexual intimacy between spouses is off the charts. It's absolutely amazing. And I think many of us can attest to that. But after that, what happens to a man is kind of unfortunate. <laughs> he he kind of falls into sexual decline. And at first it feels like on a human level that his manhood is dying, you know, on a very natural level. He's losing muscle tone. He's losing his hair, perhaps. He's losing sexual desire. Uh, his ability to perform or perform well is really diminishing. And there's a grave temptation, I think, for men to really try to hold on. They're too attached and they try to deny that process. And I think I was telling you earlier, my wife told me a story about a man who was in his seventies and he just was using Viagra left and right. And his wife ended up having to go through therapy because she just was in pain emotionally and physically because her man, her husband just was unwilling to accept this stage of his life. And so what are we supposed to do here? I think that because of all the times of learning how to engage properly and love disinterestedly in the sexual act, but also to disengage and refrain and still love the wife, especially love the wife in those times where they can't come together. He, in a sense, learns how to be, uh, in a way, like St. Joseph, a celibate, you know, a married celibate in a way. And in this elderly stage, a man has not, maybe he is becoming a little bit of an expert in self-giving. He's kind of mastering that about himself. And so then he becomes almost like, a monk-like, a married monk-like missionary of charity, okay? So because he's not bound by what he's going to get out of anything, and he's looking to give. And this is where I, I really lament how we treat the elderly in our culture, because the elderly have so much wisdom to give. I, I In our Fathers of St. Joseph groups, I'm astounded by the wisdom and the experience that comes out of these elderly men's mouths who are cramming for the final exam, yes, but they are giving themselves to these other young men with this wisdom. It's so powerful. And I think that all of us men, we need to kind of look to this final stage, if you will, which I call spiritual fatherhood. And that's the ultimate stage is when I recognize that my goal on earth is to haul souls to heaven, is to give of myself in such a way that I manifest God's glory, that I inspire people to want to embrace the cross. I inspire people to look for the hope of heaven, to know that there is something more than what this world has to offer. And I think that when you look around, we're writing off the elderly man or the elderly woman left and right. But when you find a virtuous elderly man, you have found a sage. And and that's kind of like, for me, that's the culmination of this journey Um for the for the the masculine journey of development and achievement, and I love where you put all of this in because the reality is is when you talk about these different phases, some of some people come to them at different points in their life. Like you may not be married when you gain a deeper understanding for your sexuality, the gift of it, how it's meant to be used for good, and how it is at the core of your identity as a man. Or maybe you're in a different phase when you come to understand uh, that sage wisdom of the gift of self. And I think that that's what's so incredible about diving into why is this such a core 
need for a man? Why is it at the core of who men are and such a deep desire instead of being looked at as slimy scoundrels or just men who look at <laughs> pornography, there's actually more yeah. going on. And I think that it, it actually helps to pull back the covers to point to why pornography is such a deep temptation for men mm. because in a certain respect, it helps to validate them but in all the wrong ways and that you're they're searching for so much more and that is that sacrificial love that you've indicated mm -hmm. yeah a, a husband owes his wife to love her as christ loves a church he christ sacrifices body and christ gives his body to his bride so christ sacrificed body calvary christ gives his body to his bride at the mass communion so a husband sacrifices his body by abstaining from sexual intercourse when his wife is unwilling or can't, and he refuses to guilt or shame her, that's Calvary, sacrifice. But a husband sacrifices his body by engaging in sexual intercourse reverently, tenderly upholding his wife's dignity, that's communion, in that he images Christ. Now on the wife's part, she owes her husband, through the giving of herself and sexual union, the opportunity for him to learn how to love her disinterestedly, that is, without lust. And she also owes her husband the opportunities to grow in sexual virtue by means of abstaining from sexual intercourse. So when Christ commands the couples to become one flesh, but Christ also commands a man not to lust after any other woman, it's both and, you know? So it's it's just this beautiful both and virtue. And I love sex. <laughs> I love sex for this reason. I love marriage for this reason. I think it's so redemptive. And, and at the end of the day, we talk about how there's, three you know three purposes or two purposes we talk about procreation and unification but i would add a third and i would say it's sanctification because i just know from my own personal experience my wife my relationship with her and god in all of that in the sexual relationship man i've experienced so much sanctification praise be to god i love him I keep thinking of Pope St. John Paul II's words in Theology of the Body when he says, God assigns the dignity of every woman as a task to every man. At the same time, he assigns also the dignity of every man to every woman. And we'll dive a little bit more into those words tomorrow, but I think it's significant in understanding the dignity of every woman is tasked to every man and the dignity of every man is tasked to every woman. That means appreciating and valuing these differences, even those differences that we really just have a hard time understanding about the other, but sometimes also an understanding about ourselves. And so I hope this is an episode that you will share, listen to, dive into, share with others on the real gift of the marital embrace, the real gift of understanding urgent desire, but also temperance, prudence, and ultimately what is meant to be the gift, the ultimate gift of sacrificial love as lived out by Christ and how this can enter into our relationships and conversations that we have. That's been Devin Shad from the Fathers of St. Joseph. You can find him at fathersofstjoseph.org. That's fathersofstjoseph.org. We can also find his writings as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Devin. Coming up next is the Family Rosary Across America with Father Rocky.
This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Friday, I'll be joined by Father Robert Spitzer to give sound, scientific-based proofs for the existence of God and proofs for our faith. Father Robert Spitzer comes from the Magis Center that's all about focusing on how reasonable our faith is. Also, we're coming up on Christmas, and hopefully you're still getting your Christmas shopping done because I have some great Catholic gift ideas for all ages, especially kids, but great Catholic gift ideas in general. So join me, 6 p.m. Central, on Relevant Radio.